Hey there, and welcome to the Crossroads Church Podcast. My name is Nick, and I'm the Communications Director here at Crossroads. Today, we're joined by a special guest. Pastor Ricky Spindler of Stone Creek Church is with us all the way from Urbana, Illinois. Pastor Ricky is a dear friend of Pastor Josh and Ashley Mullen and was the featured speaker at the CSM Winter Retreat 2020. So now, let's prepare our hearts to listen to what Pastor Ricky has to share with us today. This is awesome. Well, my name is Ricky Spindler, like he said, and I uh, was pretty much raised my entire life in Madison, Indiana, but I currently reside in Urbana, Illinois, where the University of Illinois is. So what I tell them is, I say, listen, I will cheer for you all year long unless you play Indiana University, and then all bets are off, okay? I'm still a Hoosier at heart. So it's a very awesome privilege to be here today. Pastor Craig, thank you so much. And I want you to know that I had a great first impression of your church because long before many of you got here, there was an older gentleman, about 86 years old, in the lobby named Clarence. And I got to interview this dude. And let me just tell you, he is the most swagalicious old man I've ever met in my life. I mean, come on. Like, he's great. And uh, I, I got to talking to him. He said uh, had the coolest shirt on. And then I noticed he had some really awesome socks. And he said, he said, listen, I'm getting really cool in my old age. And I thought, this is good. And he also said that if he didn't like what I was preaching, he was going to talk to the sound person and turn off my microphone. But he did give me some hope. He said, if you preach quick and end the service early, I'll buy you a pair of socks and I'll give you a cup of coffee in between the services. So... Come on. So if I preach good and I get done quick, you guys need to thank Clarence for that today. All right? Come on. That's good. Well, today, if you have your Bibles or your devices, I'm just going to primarily camp out on one verse, a portion of Scripture, Ezekiel 43, Old Testament book, right before uh, the book of Daniel. Uh, We're going to look in two verses, 12 and uh, 13. So like I said, I pastor a church uh, in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. Roughly 40 nations of the world are present there every week. Uh, we have not met in person for almost a year now. Things are very different there. And so we are planning on reentering in a few weeks. So that's going to be pretty exciting. So I'm here to learn a lot from you guys today. But I just want you to know, I'm a hollerback preacher. And in my church, listen, if I'm preaching good, you better say Amen. And if you can't say amen, you can just wave a little handkerchief or whatever you got. Just take your mask off, wave it, but put it back on in under 15 seconds, okay? But And if on the chat you like what you're hearing uh, online, then just put it in the chat, amen. That'll count as well. Even though I can't hear it, I'll look when this is over and see who said amen. But the message today will be informing for some, but it will be reminding for others of an important attribute about God's character, one that sometimes is overlooked, but when you read the scriptures, it's always there. And that is this, is that God is a change specialist. That God is a change specialist. You may be in here and feel like you're in a situation that cannot be adjusted, But the reality is that if God steps in, he can adjust that situation. You may feel like it's unchangeable. You may feel like you've tried everything you can. But the reality says that Scripture 
makes this a reality to us is that God has the ability to change those situations. God is a change specialist, but what I'm here to talk about is how does God bring change? How does God set you up or set myself up in order to bring about significant change? The most important thing, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. This is the most important thing and the key concept of the entire message that you won't understand at first, but hopefully by the end you will. And that is this, is that before you can alter with an E, you must first alter with an A. Before you can alter with an E, you must alter with an A. What do I mean by that? I mean that if before you can, in a physical way, bring significant change to your life, to your marriage, to your circumstances, in a physical sense, you must first win the battle in a spiritual sense. Often, without us realizing it, our lives in a physical realm are being impacted by something that we cannot see. There's a whole spiritual battle taking place in an invisible realm that's just playing out in a very real way. And if we only deal with what we can see, we'll never deal with the root of many of the situations that we're facing. So before we can alter with an E, we must alter with an A. So the question is, what is an alter with an A? This is a concept in the scripture that is personified quickly in the biblical narrative in the book of Genesis. We're introduced to a character by the name of Abraham. Some theologians call him the father of altars. It seems like wherever Abraham went, he would build these altars. And the altar biblically is this. It is a place of spiritual transaction. It is the place where the heart of humanity and the heart of God converge, and there we do business with God. And often in the Old Testament, we see in visible form what God is going to introduce to us in an invisible fashion in the New Testament. What we don't realize when we read the Old Testament often is that we're reading something that's going to be revealed later to show us what Jesus really came to do. And so the altar, you see through the life of Abraham, it is a place that is built with rocks and stones and bones and broken shards of glass. It's nothing too elaborate. It's whatever was around, they would build into a mound. And there Abraham, he would worship God. He would offer appropriate sacrifices. There, the scriptures say he would make a covenant with God. There, if there was a contract that needed to be sealed, they would build an altar, and there before the eyes of God, two parties would come together. If there was a, an offense between two parties, there before the altar, they would reconcile the offenses. It was a place of worship, but primarily, get this, it was a place of prayer. Long after Abraham's gone, God would begin to keep the theme of the altar through the life of Moses. It begins to be more permanent. He tells Moses, I want you to make a tent of meeting where I will uh, allow the Levitical priesthood to come and there they will commune on behalf of the whole nation. And in that tent, I want you to have an article of furniture called the altar. And there the priests before me will make sacrifices and worship and pray on behalf of the nation. But it gets even more defined under a guy by the name of Solomon, where he will build the first stationary place where God says, there I will house my presence. Above all things, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But in this place, I will manifest my, myself in a way that I will not in any other place in the world. And here's what God says. God says, I will look at this temple. 
Specifically, I will look at the altar to determine what I will do for this nation. My eyes, God says, are on that place. I think this is important for us to know that when God wants to deal with a nation, he never looks at the White House. Do you know where he's looking? The church. He's looking at the altar. Well, they rebel against God, the people of God do. Long after Solomon's day, they con uh, converge to idolatry, and the temple is destroyed. The altar is destroyed. Seventy years there in exile, and a priest after 70 years by the name of Ezra shows up in Jerusalem. The Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians have destroyed the city. The once immaculate temple of Solomon, that unparalleled at that time, is destroyed. There's just rubble. Ezra has the task of rebuilding the city. He's leading thousands of people. They converge after years of travel in the city. And the very first thing Ezra builds, he restores the altar, the place of transaction between the Lord. Well, they would commit idolatry again in the book of Malachi. It ends with God being silent and the longest page in your Bible has no words on it. It's the page between the Old and the New Testament. It's blank. Because for three to 400 years, God says nothing. And then you see Jesus come on to the scene. And Jesus would live a short life of 33 and a half years as the God-man in the flesh. And Jesus is crucified on a cross. The greatest ultimate altar in the scriptures is the cross, because there uh, the weak would be made strong. There the guilty would be cleansed. There the unforgivable would be forgiven. It was the place of ultimate spiritual transaction as Jesus Christ took upon the sins of the world. It is the ultimate altar. Jesus dies. He's resurrected, and he ascends. So the question is, where is the altar for the Christian? See, the beautiful thing about Christianity is there's no physical place where we are told to go. We don't have to travel thousands of miles to go have a spiritual encounter with God. Where is this altar that we speak of for the church, for the Christian? The altar is the place of prayer. The place of prayer, scripturally, is the place now where we do business with God and God does business with us. It is the place of divine exchange. It's where God does his work. Hebrews chapter 4 says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace and there we will receive mercy in the nick of time. So when we read the book of Ezekiel, and we read chapters 43, verse 12 and 13 here. This is after Solomon's temple's been destroyed. And they, and God is speaking to him about what he wants to do. And he's giving him the dimensions and he's telling him how he wants this temple to be rebuilt. And he's telling him how specifically he wants in this verse, the altar to be rebuilt. Now, at first, this is going to be like, what the heck am I reading? How many of you have read the Bible and you're like, what in the world am I just reading right here? Come on. Are you with me? So you're going to read this, and you're like, Pastor Ricky, I have no idea what this is about, but stick with me, and I'll explain it here in a few moments. But let's read it here. Ezekiel 43, verse 12 through 13, it says, This is the law of the temple. All the surrounding area on top of the mountain will be most holy. Now here it is. God's repeating himself. Now anytime God repeats himself, you need to pay attention. 
Such is the law of the temple. Two times we are told this is the law of the temple. Here's the verse. These are the measurements of the altar in long cubits, that cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. Let me read that last part again. These are the measurements of the altar in long cubits, that cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. You're like, turn to your neighbor and say, what in the world is he talking about? Come on. Now, when I read this, the question I have, what is a cubit? A cubit is a standard of measurement that God gave Noah when he was building the ark. God says to Noah, I want you to build the ark. And Noah's like, well, what do you want it to look like? And God gives him the measurements, and he says, I want you to measure it using a cubit. And a cubit is six handbreadths. So what I want you to do, we're going to practice here. This is participational. I want you to hold up your right hand. Come on. Hold up your right hand. Hold it up in the air like you just don't care. Come on, somebody. Well, there's a reason I preach and don't sing. Hands up, everybody. I want you to take your hands, spread them out like this, and then I want you to put them together as tight as you can and move your thumb in like this, like you're doing a really tight number four. And now I want you to take your left hand and hold it out in front of you like this. I want you to put this hand in the crease of your elbow. All right, and I want you to measure with me from the crease of your elbow to the tip of your fingertips. Here we go. We're going to measure it. So here we go. One, two, three, four, five, six. Now, some of you are like, I didn't have six. I had five. Some of you said I have seven. Well, some of you are just messed up. That's just all there is to it. I'm just trying to be biblical here. The Bible says it was six. So six handbreadths is one cubit. Some rabbinical scholars have titled this measurement a cubit as this. They call it the mother of the arm. Because anything that mankind, humanity, can think in their mind, they create with their hands. They give birth to it with their hands. I'm just going to pause here, fellas, and say this. If we can let the ladies have the mother in the arm, then I just say this is the father of the arm. Come on, somebody. Are you with me, fellas? Come on. Y'all the fellas? Here we go. Here we go. That's right. That's for free. I know that's a bad dad joke, but it works. It's good. When you think of, when you read the biblical narrative, just think about how the scriptures start. Adam and Eve in a garden. It's incredibly primitive when this narrative of Abraham begins, it's more Neanderthal-like than anything. Very primitive. But by the end of scriptures, think about this. Cities were built. Towers were built. Ships were introduced. Entire road systems. The rise of Rome. Incredible empires. There's an incredible progression of the ingenuity of mankind as it progresses. And our genius reflects the image of God. Did you know? Listen to this. Just think about this. From the time that Christ came and died to the time of Leonardo da Vinci, roughly 1,500 years, the cumulative knowledge of the world doubled in 1,500 years. And by the, the year 1900, it was doubling every 100 years because of the introducing of the introduction of the printing press and the telegram. By 1960, the cumulative knowledge of the world was doubling every 10 years because of the radio and the telephone. Some of you might not know what a telephone is, but it's kind of like the thing on the wall that had a turn dial. That's a telephone. 
By 1980, the cumulative knowledge was doubling every two years because of the introduction of the computer. By the year 2000, it's every six months because of the internet. Now they say by 2021 that it's doubling in less than three months. The cumulative knowledge of the world because of quantum computing. It's amazing what mankind can create with their hands. What we can give birth to as we reflect the creative genius of God. My grandfather is uh, a bit older than Clarence. Come on, somebody. He's 91 years old. And I was raised by my grandparents, and he has cancer now, and so I'm having some conversations about his life. He's 91 years old, never been sick, and I'm just amazed. Think about this. Born in 1930. Imagine the creation that he has seen in his lifetime. I mean, we're talking, he begins with horse and buggy, traveling everywhere that he can travel by a horse and a buggy. He remembers the time he bought his first car, the introduction of modern travel with the airplane, putting a rocket, somebody on the move, the discovery of, of DNA, the, come on, the invention of the Keurig. Come on, somebody. How did they make coffee before all of this? This is good stuff. The things that he has seen, but yet, listen to this. With all of that mankind is capable of, listen to Jesus' words in John 15, verse 5. Here's what he says. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. But listen to what he says. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now think about this. We can create incredible things but yet Jesus says to us in humanity, without me, you can do nothing. Those two things don't seem like they work together. Sometimes, as humanity, we can forget that we can do nothing without God. And the reality of what Jesus is saying here is that nothing spiritual will happen without God's help. Nothing of eternal consequences will ever happen without God's help. And here's the beauty of the text, Ezekiel chapter 43. Because he's speaking to Ezekiel and he says to him these words, Ezekiel, everywhere else in the temple, I want you to use a cubit. But when it comes to the altar, the place of transaction where you will commune with me, you have to use a long cubit. Which is one, two, three, four, five, six, plus one more hand. Here is the only article that will have an extra hand to it. Can I close in the next few minutes by talking to you just very briefly about this? The power of the seventh hand. The power of the seventh hand. How many of you need the extra hand in your life? How many of you need the extra hand of God to help you? This... I've been building up now. I've been safe so far, but I'm about to get preachified up in here a little bit. Now, listen, I haven't preached into a large audience for a really long time, so help a brother out here. HBO. So here's the thing. Embedded in the architecture is a principle that we can do nothing without God. We need the extra hand. Thought number one, to build something for God takes more than talent. It takes a seventh hand. To build something for God, takes a seventh hand. 
You know, listen, you can have all of the talent. You can be an incredible singer. You can be an incredible architect, architectural engineer. You can be an incredible leader, a business owner. Uh, you can be an incredible whatever you want to put in there. But the reality is this, as unless God puts his hand on your life and what you're doing, you will never have kingdom eternal impact. Because without him and his seventh hand, you can and I can do nothing. Here's another thought. We can build a building, but only God can build the church. We can build a building, but only God can build a church. We need the seventh hand. Mankind can put a man on the moon, but only God can do this. Only God can build his church. Now think about this. You can go anywhere in the world. Let's watch this. You can go to places and have better singing than you just heard. You can go to places and have better communicators than me. But what distinguishes the church, the people of God, more than any other organization in the world, what separates the people of God from all other places? You know what it is? It's the presence of God. It is the one thing that the church has that the world can never, uh, can never copy. It is unique to the people of God, specifically to his church. And we must be committed as a church, as a people. I love that you did 21 days of prayer and fasting. But why do we do that? Because we have to be committed to creating an atmosphere that when people show up, they can experience the authenticity of God. It's more than just a theological concept. He's an experienced reality through the person of the Holy Spirit. And when they come into this place or you're watching online, it can transform just a building into a holy place where God comes and meets with you and speaks to you. You may be here just to watch a simple baptism, a nephew, a cousin, a friend. And all of a sudden, you're going to sense here, listen, God has come to speak with you and to meet with you. You can experience the love of God, the mercy of God, the help of God, and more specifically, the power of God. We need, listen guys, we need the power of the seventh hand. Here's another one, is this. The work of six hands has to be done, but until the seventh hand comes, nothing of eternal value will take place. We have to do the work of six hands. If your marriage is in trouble, you better be going to counseling. You better be reading the books. You better be doing what it takes. If you're sick, go to the doctors. Do what you take. Do the work of six hands. You have to do the work of six hands. But we cannot stop with just six. We still need the seventh hand. Here's the thought. The, the scripture says that the number for the devil, you know what it is? Six, six, six. It's almost... Uh, it's a picture of the tendency of humanity embodied in Satan to always think that we can be like God. It's almost as if three times he's saying, nope, you can't be God. Nope, you can't be God. Nope, you can't be God. And Isaiah's illustration uh, and his narrative, uh, listen to this, when he talks about how the devil used to exist in heaven and was an angel, and at some point he thinks he can be God. And four times in five verses, he says this phrase, I will ascend to the throne of God. I will be like God myself. And there is a tendency in every one of us, including myself, to think that we can do this without God or we can be like him ourselves and to live an alterless life. 
to go about trying to change our marriages and change our lives and to change our circumstances and try to alter them only with an E and to bypass the A, the altar with an A, to bypass the place of prayer is to forfeit spiritual authority. You will step into situations and lack the power to bring transformation, to lack the Spirit's words to speak life into a situation if we do not first alter with an A. Before we alter with an E, we must alter with an A. Come on, somebody. I'm preaching good right there. Let me give you this thought right here. This is Black History Month, and this is a big deal in America. It's one of my favorite times of the year. Black history is American history. I am, I am the minority in my church. Often I will preach to a room full of the nations of the world, and often there are very few white people in the room. I love the diversity that God has created in his world. So I want to end today uh, by giving you a story that proves the power of the seventh hand. And it's the story of George Washington Carver. He's one of the greatest scientists at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. The South was being decimated. The, the crops, they had overproduced um, the crops on the ground. They had for years planted only cotton, and they had depleted the resources in the ground. George Washington Carver was an agricultural scientist and saw the problem that was happening. So many of the huge plantation owners were coming to this man to find out what to do. And here's what he says to them. He says, I want you in alternating years, one year to plant cotton, the next year I want you to plant peanuts. And so they follow his suggestion and they plant peanuts. Problem is, there was no market for peanuts. They overharvested, and much of it uh, they had to put in storage, and most of it was destroyed. And so the farmers come back and said, We did what you told us to do, and it's not working. So George Washington Carver has a problem on his hands. How does he create a market for peanuts? So I want you to know this about this man. He was a very spiritual man, and he had a routine. And his routine was he would get up at 4 a.m. almost every day. And he would walk through the woods and ask God a specific question to reveal to him the mysteries of nature. This, what I'm about to read to you, is from his very own journal. And his favorite verse that he would often pray is Job chapter 12, verses 7 through 8. It says this, but ask the animals and they will teach you, or the birds in the sky and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish in the sea inform you. Now, Carver took this promise at face value, and he would literally ask God to reveal to him as an agricultural scientist the mysteries of his own creation. Here, in his own words, is his journal. I asked God, why did you make the universe, Lord? And God says to him, ask for something more in proportion to that little mind of yours. Why did you make the earth, Lord? Your little mind still wants to know far too much. Ask for something more in proportion to that little mind of yours again. Why did you make man, Lord? Far too much, far too much. Ask me again, replied God. Explain to me why you made plants, Lord. Your little mind still wants to know far too much. Well then, Lord, how about the peanut? <laughs> he said, I asked the Lord meekly, and the Lord says, yes, for your modest proportions, I will grant to you the mystery of the peanut. 
Take it inside your laboratory and separate it into the water, fats, oils, gums, resins, sugars, starches, and amino acids, and then recombine these under the, my three laws of compatibility, temperature, and pressure. Then you will know why I made the peanut. George Washington Carver would discover over 300 different uses for the peanut. And on January 20th, 1921, he had to testify in front of the House Ways and Means Committee on behalf of the United Peanut Association of America. <laughs> this is, you can't write this stuff. This is the best. The chairman was a guy by the name of Joseph Fordney of Michigan and told George Washington Carver he only had 10 minutes. But an hour and 40 minutes later, he would not have made Clarence happy. Let's just put it that way. The committee told Carver he could come back whenever he wanted and to take as much time as he needed. He mesmerized the committee by demonstrating a myriad of uses for the peanut. Here it is. Everything from glue to shaving cream to soap to incesticide to cosmetics to wood stains to fertilizer to linoleum to even Worcester sauce. So the next time you shave or you put on some makeup, or the next time you stain the deck or you even fertilize a garden, a garden, or let's just be honest, the next time you experience a good old-fashioned P, B, and J, come on, remember this, that all of those things trace back to a man that had a habit of praying at 4 a.m. every morning. He was incredibly gifted and talented. He had the power of six hands. But watch what happens. He came to the altar, had a significant situation, and invited the hand of God. Do what you can do, right? Let the hand of God come. So here's what I want us to do. I want us, even if you're watching online and even in this room right now, I want us to come to the altar. You've heard enough from me. Now I want to give everybody in this place an opportunity to create a space of prayer where God can speak to you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to bow your heads. I want you to close your eyes. If you can do this while you're watching online, this is important. It doesn't matter. God's not limited by time or space. The same presence of the Holy Spirit that's at work in this place can be in work in your home, your hospital place, even in your car right now. What I want you to do is I want you do two, two things for me. We're going to change our posture here. I'm going to lead you into a time of prayer where you're inviting the power of the seventh hand. I want you to take your hands and I want you to put them out in front of you, but I want you to put them palm down. Come on. Palms down. These are your hands. These represent your power, your skills, your abilities, your talents, your treasures, everything that you have. Your hands. They represent the sins. Many of us will sin with our hands. We will click the buttons. We will do the things that we do primarily with our hands. I want you just to take those hands. All that you are, if you're here and you're far away from God, maybe you used to walk close to God, but you've distanced yourself and you need to repent and come back into a right relationship with him. Maybe you're here for the first time. You, 
you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and invited him to be Lord of your life and gave your life to him, you know what? You have the one thing that you have that God cannot take from you. It is your heart. And that heart is in your hands right now. And you have the opportunity to place your heart in God's hands. You may be here and you're facing a very significant situation that you're beyond your own wisdom, your own ability. Maybe you're a business owner and you don't know how you're going to make it through COVID and you don't know how you're going to pay these things and if you're even going to keep your business, listen, that business is in your hands right now. Maybe you've got a horrible prognosis from the doctor and it's not looking good. That situation, your health is in your hands right now. Maybe your marriage is in trouble. The thing about COVID, it has decimated marriages. And maybe you've been closer than you've ever been in proximity, but you've never been further apart. Your marriage is in your hands right now. And what I want you to do is whatever you've been holding, whatever has been perplexing you, where do you need the power of the seventh hand? I want you with hands down, you're putting all of those now in God's hands. And in your words right now, with your mouth, not in your head, not in your heart, but in, with your words, I want you to pray and say, Lord, I give my life to you. I give this situation to you. Be specific now. It can be multiple things. Maybe you're a teenager in here. I gave my life to Christ at 14 years old. Maybe as a teenager right now, you can surrender your life to the Lord. Say, Lord, I give it to you. Unforgiveness, a painful past. My mom was raped in my home when I was eight years old. I was raised by my grandparents. I know what it means to walk through pain and trouble. I didn't know my dad until I was 12 years old. I had to put that in the hands of God. Name it. Be specific. God, I give it to you. 30 more seconds. Just, Lord, I give it. Come on. Transform the place where you're at to holy ground. Make an altar right now. Make an altar where you're at. Maybe there's a life-controlling sin that no one knows about and it needs to be put to death. Come to the altar of the cross right now through prayer. Say, God, I give this to you. I can't do it in my own hands. I can't save myself. If you need to give your life to Jesus, say, Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me. I give my life to you. I ask you to be my Lord and Savior. Now I want you to turn your hands the other way. Turn them palms up. Now I just want you to ask. Ask him for mercy. You've given the situation to him. But now ask for grace with your palms up in a sign of humility now. Ask for mercy. Ask for grace. Ask for the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're a teenager in here and for the first time you're asking for the hand of God to come upon you and your life and your situation. Pray for the hand of God to come upon your marriage, upon your children. Ask Him for specific things. Ask Him to heal you. Ask Him to set you free. Come on, just make an altar right where you are. He longs to meet with you just like you long to meet with him. It's the power of the seventh hand. You can't do it without him. You can't transform your finances without him. You need the power of the seventh hand.
Oh, Jesus. Oh, Lord, we love you, Lord. Lord, we sense your Holy Spirit in this place. Lord, I ask you to come and to fill this room and to meet every person watching online. May you step into every situation. And a person in the sound of my voice, whenever they watch this, I pray may you make it real by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who are being saved and surrendering their life to you, may Holy Spirit, may you make it real to them. May they know that they've been born again, set free, completely transformed. Holy Spirit, minister to your people. Heal. Set free. Touch. Give direction. Give not just good ideas, but God ideas. If you'll do it for George Washington Carver, you'll do it for the people in this room. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the seventh hand. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. Hey, can we, can we just show our appreciation and put the biggest round of applause together to those who accepted Jesus Christ with us right now? Come on, can we celebrate all that God has done? Amen.